0: Like to begin tonight's talk with a poem by Rumi. The inner working of a human being is a jungle. Sometimes wolves dominate, sometimes wild hogs. Be wary when you breathe. At one moment, gentle, generous qualities like Joseph's pass from one nature to another. The next moment, vicious qualities move in hidden ways. In every instant, a new, Species rises in the chest, now a demon, now an angel, now a wild animal, now a human friend. There are also those in this amazing jungle who can absorb you into their own surrender. If you have to stalk and steal something, steal from them. So tonight, I'd like to talk about the wild hogs. But the actual title of this talk is much more heartening than the Wild Hogs. The title of this talk is The Hidden Treasures in the Hindrances. As many of you know, the Buddha spoke about five hindrances. He spoke about longing or hunger or wanting, he spoke about aversion not wanting, anger, irritation, annoyance. He spoke about restlessness, agitation, or worry. He spoke about sloth and torpor, which means sleepiness or fatigue, not having enough energy. And he spoke about doubt, self-doubt, doubt in the practice, this kind of thing. The Buddha compared the hindrances to events happening in a pond of water. So those of you who have gone by the pond on your daily walks, just to imagine that pond of water, or even the little beaver's pond just down the road. He said that with desire, use this example, that with desire... It's as if brightly colored paints and dyes were thrown into the pond. And so because of the paints and the dyes we're kind of dazzled by the colors, the variety of the colors, dazzled by appearances and seduced and deluded by the colors, we can't really see very clearly. He said that with ill will, It's like a pond in which the water is boiling, so hot water in the pond, boiling water in the pond. He said that with restlessness, it's as if the water on the pond is being rippled by the wind. He used the analogy that with sloth and torpor, fatigue, tiredness, that it's as if moss and algae are clouding our clarity. So we can't really see into what's actually happening. We can't see into the clear water of the pond because of so much algae and moss. And he said that with doubt. It's as if the water is muddy. You know, so mud from the bottom is coming up and clouding the rest of the pond. What I'd like to speak about in this talk is, I'm going to eventually get to each one of the hindrances, but first of all, to speak in general about the hindrances as a collective crowd. Michael mentioned last night that these teachings were offered by the Buddha over 2500 years ago now and so because of that um when we experience what the buddha spoke about it's not we we experience the very same thing and it's it's kind of very interesting i think to notice that you know and when you think about the hindrances that the buddha actually described these hindrances that I'm sure all of us have experienced in some way or another in a very coarse way or in a very refined and subtle way throughout the day. It's hard to take them personally. Not just knowing that everybody experiences them, but also recognizing that the Buddha spoke about these very same obstacles so long ago over 2,500 years ago. So, you know, when a hindrance occurs or arises, any of the five that I just mentioned, it's hard if we have this kind of perspective or vision to say, you know, it's my hindrance. It's mine. I'm not going to let anyone tell me that it's not. It's my hindrance. I must get rid of it. Kind of expands things a little bit to see it through this lens. So it's something that is experienced in practice, is experienced in meditation, is natural to experience. And at the same time, creativity and experimentation are necessary in working with our own hindrances. In other words, they're not our hindrances. We don't want to claim them as being ours, and we don't want to um, be under the delusion that others aren't experiencing them as well. But at the same time, we do need to become intimate with the hindrances that we experience within ourselves, because we all can find different ways of being creative, finding different ways of working with them, experimenting for ourselves. So this is under the category of what's called skillful means in the practice, where In experimenting and finding creative ways, we're actually working with a variety of antidotes. And of course, one classical antidote is what we worked with yesterday in the metta practice, that loving-kindness metta is an antidote for anger and aversion. But tonight, I really don't want to dwell or talk about the antidotes as interesting as that is. I really would... Prefer tonight to talk more about attitude and awareness. You know, bringing a liberating understanding to these energies when they arise, so that we feel more of a sense of confidence when they're happening, that we don't have to cope by working always with the antidotes, as helpful as they are at times. But also just changing our view, changing our perspective so that we're relating and understanding the hindrances in a radically different way. So, what happens when we hear this word, hindrance? I don't know about you, but when I first heard this word, hindrance, I thought, oh no. You know, I thought, oh no. Um, inherently, something is a problem. Something needs to be fixed. And so I really feel that this word itself needs to be rehabilitated, that we need to look more closely at its meaning. And I, I say this with great humility because I would have no access to these teachings if it weren't for the enormously skilled and um, kind translators over the years who have translated these teachings. So, you know, not not making a case for for this, but um, the word hindrance is usually the way, always the way, these energies are translated. And I think if we look more closely at the real meaning of where this word came from, um, maybe we can understand it a little little bit better. The language that the Buddha's teachings were written down in, as many of you know, is called Pali. And the word in Pali for hindrance, the translation, the direct translation, is Nivarana. The word Nivarana, a really literal direct translation of that word, is actually not hindrance, it's covering. Now, immediately something is different you know, in, in relating to these energies as as coverings. Because the implication is that Something is being covered. What is being covered? Well, the Buddha said, Luminous is this mind, brightly shining. It is colored by the attachments, meaning the thoughts and emotions that we get caught in that visit it. Luminous is this mind, brightly shining. It is just colored by the attachments that visit it. And he also said the brightly shining mind is never absent. Yeah? It's never absent. It's kind of like when we look at the sky and it's very cloudy and we are very aware of the clouds. And because we have lived as many years as we've lived, we know that there is actually blue sky behind those clouds. But if we didn't know that, we might think that the clouds were all that are. You know, we might be diluted in that way. If we still want to use the word hindrance, and I have to say I'm so used to using it that I'm going to probably in this talk be using it a million times rather than the word covering, but I still want to talk about this use of the word covering. If we do want to use the word hindrance, it really means that which hinders clear seeing. It's moving it from a noun, which is the English translation to it, to a verb, because Pali is actually a, a language of many verbs. And so hinders is more accurate than hindrance, that which hinders clear seeing. So what it means is that these obstacles obscure our seeing things as they actually are. Now, of course, it's not as if the hindrances on a relative level are not how things are. It's not like we're totally deluded and we feel this and we feel that and it's not actually happening and it's not how things are. It's just that on a deeper level, it's not really how things are. So we see a deeper level of how things are when we are willing to and able to relate to the hindrances in a different way. When we are lost and overwhelmed and drowning and have enormous faith and belief, that a hindrance is all that there is. And sometimes when we feel one of these hindrances within our hearts, we kind of do this very grandiose thing. We think it's how the world is because we feel it within our own hearts. We make something very global out of it. When we are lost in a hindrance, that's all there is. That is the entire world, and it narrows our vision. Covering implies transparency, kind of a sense of permeability, something that is transparent. And when we look more carefully and more closely at our experiences, we see that they are not quite as solid as they initially appear to be. Initially, when an obstacle, such as what I was mentioning, occurs, it seems utterly substantial and solid. But when we are willing to look in a, in a lighter way, in a more spacious way, with a broader sense of perspective, when we're able to bring wisdom in, in other words, and compassion, we see it quite differently It begins to break up and change. So the true translation, a better translation perhaps, which is a little bit of a paragraph and is something that you can't say, you know, we have to kind of do the shortcut of calling it a hindrance, but the paragraph is, well, it's actually a sentence, but it's long, that which hinders by covering over the natural luminescence of the heart. Yeah? that which hinders by covering over the natural luminescence of the heart. I think if we can remember this every once in a while, it helps to break the belief system up that the obstacles that we encounter here and in our life, because we don't just experience these obstacles here, we experience them in our life, are really not as solid as they appear to be. When we look at it in this way, we see that these obstacles are not inherent to the heart. They are unrecognized. They are assumed to be solid. And many times they're actually assumed by us to be permanent. This was the way it was. It is the way it is. And because it is the way it is and it was the way it was, it is the way it will be. And do not ask me to repeat that (laughs) sentence. (laughs) But, you know, because the past has been a certain way, we assume that this is going to be the way things are. And we find ourselves pushed around by seemingly enormously powerful forces. Transforming that which hinders into meditation means relating to the hindrances as liberating invitations. Suzuki Roshi called the hindrances, he was a a Zen master, as most of you know, he called the hindrances mind weeds, because if we look at them a certain way, they are actually converted into nourishment. There's so much we can learn by being with the hindrances um, in different ways and allowing ourselves to experience them that really they can turn into great nourishment. So through recognizing, through accepting, and through seeing into, a process of disempowerment can take place. In other words, we can see into their wave-like nature. Suzuki Roshi also said, Even though waves arise, the essence of your mind is clear. It is just like clear water with a few waves. Actually, water always has waves. Waves are the practice of the water. Even though waves arise, the essence of your mind is clear. It is just like clear water with a few waves. Actually, water always has waves. Waves are the practice of the water. So what we begin to discover is that each hindrance, each chunk, holds energy, kind of kept energy. We can discover the inner treasure within each hindrance. What we begin to see when we're willing to recognize and accept and understand more deeply is that within desire and longing really is contentment and ease. We discover this for ourselves through our willingness to see in a different way than we always have. In the midst of aversion, if we're willing to sit with aversion without trying to avoid it or without justifying and getting caught up in it, hidden within aversion is metta, loving kindness and compassion. Within restlessness and the willingness to befriend restlessness is a depth of calm that we have may have never experienced before in our lives because of our efforts to move away from restlessness and get involved in busyness in our life. When we stop and we stand still or we sit still in the way that we are here, Oftentimes, lots of restlessness begins to emerge, and we think it's just because we're here, when actually we're giving it a chance to be felt, to be experienced. And in the feeling of it, the 100% experiencing of it, it changes into a depth of calm. So this deep calm is a hidden treasure within restlessness within what is classically known as sloth and torpor. And those of you who are new, I mean, we just throw this word around, sloth and torpor, but it is a really odd way to put it. Someone actually printed a whole Internet thing out for me um, describing a sloth. And I guess sloths are pretty much, you know, slothful and um, have a lot of torpor, (laughs) when I was um the times i've taught out in Cloud Mountain, which is um, a really small retreat center way out in the middle of the woods, there are these huge i love teaching there because there are these huge slugs that are um, you know they 're really gushy but they're they 're enormous um, People come in like, show you slugs. You know, there's a good one over there, and there's one over there. And I think they're a little bit inspiring, you know, because of this effort to try to slow down a little bit and non-urgency. So, you know, sometimes people use the slugs a bit as their model. <laughs> Whatever works. With doubt, you know, when we experience doubt, if we're willing to abide with doubt and not get caught up in it, The other side of doubt or the hidden treasure within doubt is confidence and trust and a deeper degree of dedication and commitment. So how to find this inner treasure? How to find it for ourselves so it's not just a rumor or a good idea? Our relationship to the hindrances needs to be changed, needs to be adjusted, because practice is a process of transmutation rather than transcendence. We all want to transcend. You know, it would probably be easier. But to go up also means that one has to come down. It's inevitable. You can't go up and not come down. Yeah, I sometimes just think about a mountain in this way, that when you climb up a mountain, you have to climb or somehow get down that mountain as well. Many years ago, Michael and I found ourselves in Nepal. We were, it was an intentional trip. We didn't just find ourselves there. (laughs) It's a long way to go to find yourself there. we were um on a bit of a pilgrimage to visit a teacher that we were very interested in uh his name he died actually he we were there in the fall and he died that january um his name was um is uh uh Erkintoku. and so we had heard some friends had gone to see him as well and so we kind of thought we had the lay of the land about how to get to him and you know, the directions and all of that. So we um, we started making our way there, and it, it actually was not so easy. We were on one situation where someone pointed, you know, he's over there. But over there was like over all these mountaintops. <laughs> so we somehow had to find our way not, you know, hopping from mountaintop to mountaintop to where he actually lived. But we finally found the general neighborhood, the general vicinity. And What I realized is that it was really kind of like one of those um, things one reads about, that it's not easy to get to the teacher. There was a huge mountain that was between me and the teacher. And I was a Girl Scout, but (laughs) I really wasn't a very good Girl Scout. I really am not so much the hiking type. I grew up in a family that was very athletic, so they, you know, I kind of got dragged around to this or that. But there was a lot of protest in being dragged around, so I never really got the hang of it. So I was there, and I, you know, I probably had flip-flops on. I mean, I'm sure I didn't have the right (laughs) shoes on. And I was there just kind of hanging out, wondering, you know, I'm not going to go home. I I didn't feel like I had a choice. I felt like I've got to get up this mountain and then i I had a memory I realized that my friend and colleague Sharon Salzberg had gone to visit tolku Ergen, Erkin tolku people say it in both ways tolku Ergen or Erkin tolku um not long before this, and you know I know she's really not the hiking type either, so I thought if she can do it, I can do it too and then I was just hanging out a little bit, just kind of getting up the courage to to make my way up the mountain and all of a sudden, these Buddhist nuns came down and they had high heels on. <laughs> it was out of a movie, you know, nuns in, with shaved heads and robes and high heels. So anyway, I thought that if they could do it in high heels, because I assumed they'd gone up in high heels as well, that, that maybe I could too. So anyway, because I had these visions, you know, I really, really wanted to have contact with him. And I had these visions of Michael, who of course had you know, he did the the repelling off the mountains at times in his life, so I knew it would be easy for him. So I was having these visions of him going up the mountain on his own and then, you know, you who you know <laughs> giving me little bits of the teaching from way up way up on high. <laughs> it was before cell phones. <laughs> So anyway, I I the end of the story is that, you know, I did summon up my courage and I and I did get up the mountain. And of course, it's always just one step at a time, you know? I mean, it's not like you you go up the whole mountain at once. It's always one step at a time. And then I got to the top, and you know, of course, like, oh no, how do I get down? Because sometimes it's a lot harder to get down than <laughs> it is to go up, but anyway, I did get down, and then I came home, and i you know i had a had a good laugh with Sharon, she got a real kick out of if if she could do what I could do, I could do it too. She loved being a model in that way <laughs> and um then she told me that it was actually a different mountain that she had climbed. <laughs> So I was really glad that I didn't know that because, you know, in the in the situation I was in, it just gave me a little bit more courage. But anyway, process of transcendence, transcendence is this kind of thing of if you go up, you have to go down, and sometimes we go down in quite a crash-like way, whereas really, truly, this practice is about transmutation. turning desire and longing into contentment and ease, turning aversion into metta and compassion, turning restlessness into calm, turning sloth and torpor into aliveness and vitality, turning doubt into confidence and trust and dedication. This transmutation has to do with a dedication to awareness leading to understanding or contact with our experiences bringing wisdom so it's really slow and steady work you know really pa- a patient and steady willingness and just not surrendering any ground that's gained but we can really when we move in this path or deepen in this path there is a certain kind of reliability that becomes very apparent to us. I mean, we begin to see really how to practice and where we can take refuge. And there's something from within that begins to flower. We see that recognition and honesty are our allies, seeing what is, so that we can see what really is. Seeing what is, so that we can see what really is. So just um, to speak about each one of the hindrances in this light, in terms of how to actually work with the hindrances in a fruitful way. When desire arises and by desire, also, what is meant is is the longing that we may experience wanting something or another um, hunger, that feeling of hunger of having to have something in order to be happy. We want to try to get to know it, we want to try to recognize it. Ah,, you know, desire is happening right here and right now, ah. You know, hunger is occurring. Ah, longing is happening. You know, seeing if we can just identify it and recognize it. Personally, I I feel that that little ah preceding the identification of it is quite helpful. It opens it up a little bit. Ah, this is what's happening. Ah, that is what's happening. To experience it as it is. Now, to experience it as it is means to withdraw our attention from the object. To actually withdraw, this is a little bit where the heavy lifting comes in, to withdraw our attention from the object of our desire so that we can be aware of desire itself, the energetic current of desire, rather than focusing on what it is that we have to have. So really making a very clear and deliberate and determined effort to not focus or cling to what it is that is wanted. Because this is where our attention usually goes, and this is where our conditioning is dragging us. You know, It's dragging us into focusing on the what, on the object, on what it is we need to have. And then maybe we get that what, you know, if we try hard enough. And then it just simply moves to another what, and then to another what, and another what. And then, of course, you know, there is just the cultivation of more hunger, more um, desire, more of a sense of needing something to fulfill us or to complete us. So to short-circuit that, we have to withdraw from the object— every time there is an object, and focus on the sense of it itself. In other words, focus on the source. Focus on the energy of longing itself. Experiencing the sensation of desire as it is, distinct and unentangled from the object. It's really important not to judge the what you know, oftentimes desire indicates a real vitality and aliveness within us. Yeah? So it's not something to judge. As William Blake said, those who enter the gates of heaven are not beings who have no passions or who have curbed the passions, but those who have cultivated an understanding of them. You know, it's so it's not to come down on desire or try to squelch it or judge it in any way. It's really to experience it as it is. Of course, there are many beautiful longings that we experience as human beings. You know, to love is a longing that is utterly beautiful. To want to be loved, of course, that vulnerability, that openness to love is a very beautiful desire. So it's not to um, judge Desire When it's happening, it's seeing if we can uh, feel it, experience it as it is, not connected or linked or attached to what it is that we think to ha- we have to have. So not to tamp down on the sensation, just to see if we can step back a bit away from the object. Sometimes I think of it like those old cop shows, you know, ma'am, you know, could you step away from the car? Right now, (laughs) yeah, kind of like could you could you just kind of step away from the object? I have a a niece who um, tends to tease me some. I used to be able to tease her, and now she's getting older, so you know, lots of teasing coming my way. And um, one area that she teases me in is that um, I tend to interact with babies when I when I see babies on the street. I mean, everybody, many of us really find babies to be quite adorable. But um, I tend to, you know, interact a little bit. So when she's with me, she say, okay, okay. You know, she's concerned that the mother's going to get afraid. <laughs> Thanks a bunch. <laughs> so she says, okay, now step away from the baby. <laughs> so anyway, <laughs> step away in any way you can. And allow the sensation to be. Don't contract. Try not to contract. We may experience an ache in the heart, you know, when we're willing to not latch onto the object. We may experience a softness or a vulnerability in the chest area. We may be able to actually be in touch with a sense of deprivation, kind of where that having to have or want or need is coming from. You know, we may be actually able to touch that. What we want to do is to be present and sensitive with it, to care for it, to observe without over-focusing and without contracting, to understand that life in other forms is still going on, you know, because we lose it when we have to have something and when we when our vision really narrows we lose a sense of life happening in a variety of different forms so it's not a matter of going into it you know we don't want to try to make something happen we don't want to like you know go into it so that we'll find the hidden treasure it's more a sense of spaciousness we want to step away from the object to Um, feel the source, you know, perhaps in the heart area, to feel, to experience the desire itself in as palpable a way as possible. And to not narrow in on it, but instead, at the same time as we're experiencing the sensations of desire, to also be aware of whatever else is happening. I mean, you don't have to do that. You can certainly just allow the sensation of desire to be as big as it wants to be. You don't have to include other kinds of things that are happening in life, you know, the bird chirp or breeze on the skin or these kinds of things. But in any case, to really give room for that sensation to be, instead of going into it with this idea of I'm going to get something out of it. So with patient observation, we attend. With very patient observation. And as our patient observation continues, as it grows even more patient, we find what we need within, and we actually gradually discover an inner contentment. And this is something that happens on this path. It's not just... An idea, it's something very tangible that we experience, is that we discover a sense of inner contentment. When aversion occurs, which is, of course, not wanting, or anger, or annoyance, or irritation. Again, we want to get to know it. We want to try to recognize it as it is. Ah, aversion is happening right now. Ah, um, uh, fear is happening right now, which is in the family of aversion. Ah, irritation is happening. Ah, annoyance is occurring. Ah, rage is happening right now. To experience it as it is. Sometimes it is true that there is more aversion to little things when we're on retreat than is so in our daily life. And we become really aware of it. And I wanted to just read you another letter by my great guru, Tofu Roshi, who um, a practitioner named Susan Moon channels, by the way. Dear Tofu Roshi, At a long retreat, you get to know people really well in a certain way. You get to know their physical presence, how they walk and bow and chew their food if they do chew. Well, here is my problem. When I go to a long retreat, instead of becoming more open and loving as the retreat progresses, (laughs) I become more and more critical of the sentient beings around me. At our last retreat, there was a man who, after each step in walking meditation, would nod his head with satisfaction, as if he was congratulating himself for being so holy. And there was a woman who, when she pressed her palms together to bow, crooked her little fingers as if she was drinking tea at Windsor Castle. At such times, I am choked by rage. I want to break things. I flush with hot anger at every ladylike bow or self-satisfied nod. Did you ever feel this way? In my normal life, I'm a fairly nice person. (laughs) Love, Gladys. Dear Gladys, once I had a student who could not stop from plucking tiny wool balls off her sweater during meditation (laughs) sessions. She provided us with an opportunity to practice patience and tolerance. One day I noticed with some relief that she had finally rendered her sweater completely threadbare. But she arrived the next day in a new sweater and began work on it. About halfway through a long retreat, in order to facilitate the release of tensions such as you describe, I often have the community join together in a sort of modified game of charades, in which each person takes a turn to imitate the irritating foibles of another, (laughs) while the onlookers guess who is being impersonated. We all feel much closer to each other after our little improvisational theater session. (laughs) I mean, all of us could do that at this point, is our own rendition of of um, how how we're practicing. Not that it would bring us closer, however. <laughs> but we experience these same things in our everyday life. You know, sometimes it feels stronger on retreat. All of these hindrances feel stronger. I don't usually feel like this. What's wrong with me you know, in my everyday life? But actually it's because we're not paying close attention. And here we are. The furniture has been moved out of the way. You know, the ways of entertaining ourselves or being stimulated from outside sources, it's, it's not happening here, as you noticed. You know? And so in the spaciousness, we begin to touch what has always been there, but that which we have been afraid to uh, connect with, to see, into, to feel to experience. And here we are in this really safe situation where it is possible to touch what we find is there. And this is in our daily life. If we can touch it here, we have a much, much better chance when we're in the midst of our daily life of not being as intimidated by what is felt within. Uh And much more of a chance of not getting caught in self-blame or in blaming others. So again, withdraw the attention from what it is that we don't want. This might be a person. This might be a thing. This might be a condition. This might be the weather. This might be um, anything at all. You know, you have to see, like, what don't I want? What am I angry at? and then not to focus on the at part, really to see if it's possible. And it's not easy because, first of all, this is where our conditioning is operating really strongly, is this absorption into what it is that we're angry about. And also, we are not really all that trained in withdrawing our attention. We have to develop some faith and confidence in the fact that we're not going to get happiness out of getting rid of what we want to get rid of. You know, that the happiness is going to come out of really um, recognizing and making room for and allowing that anger within ourselves to dissolve in its own way, in its own time, in the light of awareness. So experience... The sensations of aversion as they are, not trying to manage it. You yeah. it's it's almost like we have such a, a great container here within. Let's just say the sitting, um, the the sitting itself, where because we're kind of safe in terms of getting ourselves in too much trouble. You know, because we're just sitting. Because of that, we're sitting. We're not moving in cooperation. We're not speaking much. You know, we're not acting it out. And so because of that, one can allow that aversion or that irritation or that annoyance or that rage or that anger to be. It doesn't have to be pushed away or pushed out of the way because it is a safe container. And then we can allow awareness to do its work if we can be with it with grace and with kindness and with compassion as it is, distinct and unentangled from the object. So really kind of three things in terms of working with aversion. The first is not to judge it. It's very practical, the reason why not to judge it. It's not being moralistic, don't judge it. The reason not to judge it is that judgment itself is aversion. So it's piling aversion on top of aversion when we judge it. And then there is a compounding of aversion. It's double aversion, you know? And of course, sometimes our aversion, because when we kind of get the drift of not judging, then of course we're judging the fact that we're judging, and then there's aversion. So it's layer upon layer upon layer. But, you know, in this practice, we really just want to be with what is right in front of us. So if aversion is happening, even if it's judging the judging of the aversion, fine, just be aware of that sensation itself. Drop the story and be aware of the sensations of aversion in a palpable way. Number two, with aversion, try not to justify it. I should feel this way. I deserve to feel this way. Well, perhaps so. You know, perhaps so. And maybe even not perhaps, maybe maybe even definitely so. But it's not a way out. It's a brick wall. I should, I deserve to. Because the anger, the aversion, it just has a life of its own. And we never move through it into the loving kindness and compassion that is hidden within it, or another way of putting it, is on the other side. The third is don't identify with it. Because I am feeling aversion, it means I am a hateful person. No, it doesn't mean this. It is an energy that is arising and passing away. So don't be defined by your experiences. Allow it to be. Don't contract around it. Try to be present and allowing and accepting. And again, don't try to go into it. It's not a matter of going into it. With a nonverbal, patient observation, we gradually discover loving-kindness and compassion. When we are restless, when restlessness is occurring, seeing if we can stay still in the midst of it, you know, sitting in the middle of the restlessness without strain, I'm not suggesting that we force ourselves to stay still. I am suggesting that when we move in cooperation with the restlessness, we really exacerbate it. It tends to get stronger. So the key in working with restlessness is stillness. And I'm not saying that we have to stay still for a certain amount of time, but just for maybe two minutes or three minutes or or something like that. Experiencing restlessness with nonverbal, silent attentiveness calm gradually emerges we know a depth of calm that we may have never experienced before in our lives when we are dull or sleepy when inertia strikes what we want to do is see if we can get underneath it look directly into it you know getting underneath it means exploring it and staying present with it one might want to experience the sleepiness, um, that kind of grittiness in the eyes. So being aware of the sensations behind the eyes, you know, feeling that the, the spine wants to curl up a bit. Of course, wishing that we could use our cushion in a different way for our head instead of for our tushes. But to see if the sleepiness itself can be explored. Try not to resist it and try not to indulge it. And with patience and with an enduring mindfulness, we do discover an inner sense of vitality and aliveness and this sometimes happens quite unexpectedly, because one can be sleepy, 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 and then all of a sudden, radical wakefulness yeah and it's always a surprise it's not something one can plan for and of course if we plan for it we're going to tire ourselves out and get more sleepy and you know we'll not discover this inner treasure but if we're willing to be with the sleepiness as it is as it is to explore it this kind of waking up is there when doubting when doubting oneself, when doubting the practice, when doubting the meaning of life, we want to experience the doubt itself. Not so much why there is doubt, because again, that is an overfocusing on the object. There is an attachment to the why. So instead of that withdrawing from the why, not judging and not justifying it, trying not to believe in it, And at least at times, trying to doubt the doubt. We believe in our doubts so profoundly. And so experimenting with doubting one's doubt. Gradually, a newfound confidence and commitment and dedication emerges. And we find within ourselves an unshakable faith. So in general, don't contract as our conditioning is dictating. Don't absorb into the object or focus on the object, which again is where our conditioning is pushing us. See if you can rest within awareness and see everything as a whole, offering spaciousness and acceptance, awareness and kindness. We all have these treasures within us. Truly trust this and practice accordingly. The inner working of a human being is a jungle. Sometimes wolves dominate, sometimes wild hogs. Be wary when you breathe. At one moment, gentle, generous qualities like Joseph's pass from one nature to another. The next moment, vicious qualities move in hidden ways. In every instant, A new species rises in the chest, now a demon, now an angel, now a wild animal, now a human friend. There are also those in this amazing jungle who can absorb you into their own surrender. If you have to stalk and steal something, steal from them. So let's just take a moment and sit together. May all beings be safe and protected. May all beings be peaceful. May all beings live in love and in compassion. Thank you. Um, There is a walking right now, but before you get up, I wanted to um, speak to the veggie washers in the crowd. Um, who's, Who's a veggie washer? Can you raise your hand?